scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, and we are going to be doing verses 1 through 12. I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles or your app. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. It's good to see you. My name's Josiah. Um, I'm one of the pastors here on the staff. If you're new here, um, welcome. My joy to be able to bring God's word for us today. If you're online, a special welcome to you. Um, thanks for you know taking a moment to tune in, uh, be a part of this as much as possible. Um, again, we just want to keep saying it uh, from our hearts here at Crosspoint, your church family. Uh, we long for the day we get to sit with you again, see your face, hug your neck. Um, man, what a day that will be. But man, we are also trusting that we are using every means possible that God has given us to participate, to lean into community. And so thanks for being here, guys. Um, let me get my counter started here because I want to make sure I stay on time today. So today we're in we're looking at this continuation of healing. Last week the main uh, theme was Jesus is the embodiment of God's authority on earth to heal both inwardly and outwardly, ex- externally and also inwardly. Jesus is the embodiment of God's authority, Pastor Ryan told us. And specifically uh, towards our healing with sin. That Jesus has the authority to do that. So we're staying in that same vein today. Um, we're just kind of taking a continuation here, and we're going to try to tease out a little bit uh, from this story now. Um, and the sermon series that we're in is called The Gospel of Mark, um, and tagline, Follow Me. Follow Me, because these, this is Jesus' words uh, to the, from the very beginning, from the disciples uh, that he meets along the riverbank or the sea bank 
And um, indeed, to us today, the same words are, follow me. Follow me. And what we see in every circumstance of Jesus calling the disciples to follow him is a necessity to act. And it's what we must apply to our understanding today when Jesus is saying, follow me, follow me. It necessitates an action. It requires it from us. It meant when Jesus said to his disciples, it meant uh, that something rose up with inside of them to make them get up and go. Something happened when Jesus called. But so let's, let's first look at the setting here of this story in verses 1 and 2. Uh, it says here that Jesus returned to Capernaum. Capernaum was a place that Jesus uh, spent most of his ministry on earth. Mark calls it his home here in verse 1. And we see that, you know, in, in the last chapter, Pastor Ryan was preaching that he was uh, um, rising early in the morning, went to his father to pray, and then the disciples found him, and he says, let's take leave. We need to go on so that I can preach the word of God to the other towns. That's why I've come. So now he's back after some days, it says. Jesus' popularity is continuing to rise, so much so that he can't go anywhere without a crowd forming around him. So here we see yet, yet another crowd coming around Jesus, um, and... Uh, and people are trying to get in. They're pushing their way in. Let me see Jesus. Let me see him. There's this interesting theme that Mark uh, continues through his gospel, through his account, and it's this theme of crowds and houses. It's really interesting, and the crowds are really a uh, representation of obstacles to Jesus, while the houses are representing closeness and nearness and intimacy with Jesus. We see Jesus um, talking in parables in the crowd, but yet in the house, he speaks to his disciples, those who are closest to us, in, in him in detail of who he is and explaining the parables. And in large part, we see this over and over again. Jesus talking to those closest to him about who he is. And so something we learn from this is this, that enthusiasm and proximity to Jesus do not equal faith in Jesus. Enthus think about that. We can be enthusiastic about everything that Jesus is doing, and the, what's clear here is that we can even be close to him, right up next to him, and deny him. That's what the, the gospel stories are telling us. It also means that we see that crowds observe what's happening. Crowds observe, but disciples commit themselves to action. Disciples are those who get up and follow. The crowds observe, but they're not actually, actually led to action. So within this context, within this setting, within this house, in the midst of this large crowd now gathered around, we see that Jesus is preaching the word. Just like in chapter 1, verse 38, he says that I've come to preach the word. In the Gospel of John, chapter 18, Jesus says this, for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. He's talking to Pilate here in the sitting. 
to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So get this. The most regular thing that we see in the Gospels is not uh, Jesus healing, but rather preaching and teaching. The most regular thing that we see, yes, we see him healing, but the most regular, often thing that we read about is him preaching and teaching. This is because the word exacts a response from us. The word of God exacts a response. The response will either be toward Jesus in belief or away from Jesus in unbelief. Anyone can be wowed by miracles, and indeed many were. We see in this story at the very end in verse 12 that the crowd responds, Wow, we have never seen anything like this before. But it's the word of God declared that demands a response. The sobering reality in this setting is that it's the city of Capernaum that Jesus later pronounces his most harshest rebuke aside from Jerusalem. And he says this in Matthew 11 about Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, this means that even though Capernaum, think about this, even though Capernaum heard Jesus preaching more than many other towns, perhaps any other town, they were left unconverted. J.I. Packer, he, uh, he says this about this. He says, We forget the amazing power of unbelief. Take a hold of that. The power of unbelief. In the depth of man's enmity against God. We forget that the, the Gepairites, I don't even know how you say that, heard the most faultless preaching and saw it confirmed by the most surprising miracles and yet remained dead in their transgressions and sins, we need reminding that the gospel, the same gospel, which is the savor of life to, the, uh, to some, is the savor of death to others. And that the same fire which softens the wax will also harden the clay. Next slide. Nothing, in fact, seems to harden people's hearts so much as to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer the service of sin in the world. Wow. There is a danger that we have in, in the proclamation of even our regularity of the gospel to assume that, man, if I just hear it and understand it, then somehow... God is pleased with me. And we fall in the danger of it becoming just regular and we become passive to it. Today, as we hear church, the word of God preached, we must remember that hearing is not enough. It is faith that our Lord Jesus demands of us. His word will exact a response today. 
There's not one person here sitting in this room. There's not one person online watching right now that can remain neutral to Jesus' word proclaimed. You will either move towards him in belief or you will move away from him in unbelief. God, I pray that it's the former. God, would you allow our hearts to move toward you in belief today? Spirit of God, you are welcome here. Flood this place. Fill the atmosphere. Awaken our hearts to see Jesus, to savor him, to love him, to give our lives for him, to be sold out followers of Jesus, believing wholeheartedly Jesus in all that you've done for us. Would you do that good work in us today, Father? Amen. Amen. The big idea this morning is this. um, Following Jesus means living out our faith that he has the authority to make us well from the inside out. So again, just same continuation, right? Jesus has the authority to heal us from the inside out. And we're going to see today this mostly has to do with our sin. We're going to look at this in four parts. First, that faith is active. Two, our greatest problem is sin. Three, paralysis threatens all of us. And four, the Son has all authority. He has total authority. So number one, faith is active. This is what we've been talking about. Faith is active. active. Like the men um, who carried this paralytic in, um, we need to see that faith requires us to make room. Faith requires us to make room in our hearts. Like the men who carried this, this paralytic man for who knows how far, uh, just to be met with a, an opposition, like seemingly no way to get to Jesus, constituting them to have to make an alternative route inside the house by digging into the roof and creating a hole in the roof and lowering this man down. So genuine faith removes every obstacle to get to Jesus. It removes every obstacle. I'm getting to Jesus. That's what our faith produces in us. It's not passive, it's active. And there are, are, are those who are passive in the crowd, and, and we have no indication, again, that these people were converted, and yet it was the faith of a few that resulted in the healing of a man, both inwardly and outwardly. Let me heart check today. What do you want more than Jesus? We want more than Jesus. And let's be honest today. And just reel and say, there are things that we want more than Jesus. There are moments in our lives, and maybe it's patterns of your life, just ongoing of things that you are not willing to give up because you love it more than Jesus. Our hearts are in battle every single day. There's a war against our mind, and it's our flesh, and it's saying, no. This is better than Jesus. You don't need Jesus. This is better. This is all you need. So let me help you out, like kind of nudge you in the right way in answering that question with another question with, do you truly recognize your need for Jesus? Like answer, what do I want more than Jesus with the the question, do I see my need for him? Because it was the paralytic's need, his physical need that made him and his friends constituted them to do what they did in order to get to Jesus. That he saw, like, there, there was no, no denying, like, obviously he knew how needy he was. 
right? That was, it was obvious to him. He, he couldn't walk. You know, there, there was no kind of getting around that. You couldn't hide that. Is there a need in you, and does that need drive you to Jesus? And, and just so, you know, we're clear, we're not, when we're talking about faith is active, right? We're not simply talking about um, good works. It is that. Like James talks about that faith without works is dead. It, it is that, but we're talking about an, an activity of our hearts. Like, what's the activity of your heart that, that, that you're continually doing and leaning into, or into in order to stir your affections to Jesus, in order to get to Jesus? Faith requires you to make room, but faith, this kind of faith also requires a community of faith. Like, this type of uh, thing that we're talking about, uh, this activity, you can't do on your own. You just can't. It, w- it was the friends of the paralytic. It was their faith that Jesus was impressed with. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was the paralytic's faith as well, certainly, but Mark says their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, not just the paralytics, but the faith of the friends with him. It was their faith that is active, showing care, compassion, and friendship to someone who was excluded from both the, the financial, the relational, the social rewards of life. And they said, man, we're with you. We're with you. We're going to do what it takes to get you to Jesus. But let me ask you this. Um, who are those that you depend on in life? Who are those that are, that are saying with you, like right alongside you, and they're like, I'm going to do what it takes that you get to Jesus? And then, you know, second, who are those that need you? Who are those that need your support? The pandemic that we're in right now um, has affected every single person. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's a, not affected everyone equally. There's millions of people across the world that have been thrown into poverty and as a result have, um, are suffering from fear and anxiety. There's thousands of people that have lost loved ones and they're losing hope in life. There's many more who um, are battling with their faith and they're questioning, is God even real? Is the church even legitimate? And, and the reality is, guys, every single one of those things, I guarantee is represented in our body on some level. So hear this. I mean, active faith, it always includes others. And this means that because of the reality of what is happening around us, not just in a pandemic, but it kind of exposes a lot of these other things, but because it requires us as a community to be with each other in order to see Jesus, and because of what we're up against in life, it requires us to get scrappy with our sin. Like, to fight scrappy and to say, no, this ain't happening. You guys know the, that Under Armour commercial a while back? And like, we must protect this house. You know that? Like, right? Like, do we have that mentality to say, you know what? We're going to protect this house. This is my family. You're my family. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you to Jesus. 
I'm not going to let you be stranded away from the rewards that Christ has for you. No, we're going to see the beauty and the fullness of it together. We're going to walk this path together, good and bad, whatever it takes. We're going to protect this. We're going to get street fighter on our sin. Listen to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says this. I know you're familiar with this, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. I like this, these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. The ESV uses lay aside every weight, and I think it's just so like, eh, you know, but like, let, no, let's, we're going to strip it off. Like we're going to be intentional about this. We're going to strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So you see the intentionality of stripping off, but then also notice this in this passage. Look at all the, the, the plural pronouns scattered throughout here. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. This life, this active faith is not to be done alone. It is our work. It is our work. Number two, our greatest problem is sin. I know you know this. We say this probably every single week in some fashion or another. Your greatest problem is sin. But may, lest we ever um, forget it or think lightly of it, we need to be reminded again, the issue here is our sin. It's the greatest thing that we're up against. And it may be obvious to you in this story. It probably is. It wasn't to me for some reason. I don't know how I didn't see this at first. I'm sure, I'm sure you get it already. But it's crucial that we see that these men worked so hard to get their friend to Jesus so that he could be healed of his paralysis. And Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> at least not at first, right? What does he say to that? He says, your sins are forgiven. Verse 5. So Jesus, looking at this man, who obviously is laid down before him, knowing full well that he can't walk. Okay, Jesus isn't a dummy. He didn't make a mistake here. He, he looks at this man, and he sees his true need. He sees down in his heart. He sees beneath the surface, and he, he speaks to the very thing that he needs the most, and he forgives him. Some people have interpreted this as Jesus forgiving the, the general sin um, that um, created this illness. I mean, after all, you know, all death and sickness and disease is a result of the fall of man and the creation. But Jesus says here that, he says, your sins are forgiven. Your personal sins are forgiven. Jesus knew what he really needed. Let, let's briefly look at this concept of the crippled man's sins and see what it may mean for us. There is sin, and then there are sins. And 
in theological terms, there, um, it, talking about sin has two different aspects to it. There is original sin. This is the, the nature uh, and the character of us. This, it affects our, the nature of us and the character of us. That we have a totally corrupt heart. That nothing good comes from us. And this then affects how we think and how we act. And just to say it clearly, as it's been said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You see that? We're not sinners because we sin. Yes, we, we do sin. But we sin because we're sinners to begin with. Our nature is corrupted. We come into this world corrupted, and everything that comes out of us is vile to God. The second aspect is that there is actually an imputed sin in theological terms. There is a sin that has been imputed into us. And this has to do with our guiltiness before God. The Bible teaches that in Adam's one sin, all man sinned. And all are unrighteous and guilty before God because of that. If you want to uh, study this more, I do encourage you to um, because um, it's, it's, a, it's a great study to dive into. Um, and also, it, uh, I believe it would, in, it would build you up in your faith and it would give you a better understanding as a student of God's Word. Uh, I would suggest starting Romans 5. Um, verses 12 through 21. Start there and allow that to lead you through to other passages and to do your own study in this. Um, uh, we're not going to have time. To, this isn't what the sermon's about today, but I want to give you this as well. Um, John Frame's Systematic Theology, um, his systematic theology called An Introduction to the Christian Belief, his, his uh, systematic theology on sin specifically is so good, so rich. Uh, the Westminster confession of faith. Start there. The, in, in that confession, lists out in theological terms such richness um, to the faith that we believe. And then if you're looking for something maybe just a little shorter, John Murray has a book called The Imputation of Adam's Sin. And it's less than 100 pages long. It's easy to read. Um, the Imputation of Adam's Sin. I encourage you to dive into that. But I want to lean into this for a second here. Um, John Frame, in particular, has this way of describing the different aspects of sin. So to understand this, uh, he first talks about goodness or righteousness. And there is, on the next slide here, he has this kind of tri-perspectival look at it. So these three different aspects of righteousness or goodness. The first aspect of goodness is that there is a standard which God has. It's an obedience to that. Like we get that, right? Well, I'm righteous when I obey God's law. That one's pretty easy to understand. There's the standard, obedience to that. But it's also, righteousness or goodness is also um, due to how that, the, the goal of that obedience. What is the goal? And that is God's glory. The glory of God is our goal in obedience to him. But it's also, in third way, the third aspect is a motivation, that it has to be motivated by faith. And so we take that, and then we look at sin. We look at the next slide, 
And in the same manner, if that's true, then sin is a disobedience to God's standard. It is no longer the goal of, of God's glory, but it is self. And it is rooted and motivated in unbelief. And this is why we can see that there, you know, there are people in the world that do good things. They do amazing things. things better things than probably I will ever do. And yet they're sinners before God. And yet God counts it as filthy rags. It's because it has, it has to do with where our goal is. Where is, God's, is it God's glory? And is it rooted in belief in God? The reason I bring this up today is because the need that the cripple had is the same that you and I have today. It's complete forgiveness of our sins. Our sin and our sins. The sin that corrupts our life and our actual sins and thoughts. It's deeper than we really like to think. It's, it's our whole self. And even it, my obedience to, like, to God, to doing the right things, does not make God happy with me. Just like a criminal could not stand before a judge and be acquitted of the things that he has done if he just simply outdoes his wrong with good things, right? It doesn't work that way. I can't just simply do good things before God. No, my righteousness has to be imputed to me the way that my sinfulness was and that's through Christ's life and death. That Jesus takes the place of us and it takes the place of our imputed sin from Adam. It's not merely the sins that you and I commit, but a completely new nature or heart that wants to follow Jesus. And God grants us this in Salvation Church. And then over time, over time, God works his perfecting work of Jesus in our life to look more and more like Jesus. We know this as sanctification. And for those of us in Christ, I, I imagine um, if you're here today and, and you know this story, you know this story for your life, then I imagine you can look back and you could see that God has used some of the things in your life all of the things in your life. You may not be able to see all of it now, but God has used things in your life in order to bring you to a place of uh, where you're at right now. Seemingly things that would be, uh, or things that would be seemingly impossible for God to use, he's used for good and his glory in your life. Right? And could it be in this story that the only reason that this man was crippled was paralyzed, was so that he would have to be carried to Jesus in order for Jesus to look at him and say, your sins are forgiven. Could it be that that was the very reason he was paralyzed to begin with? The point is this, that God will use even our infirmities to sanctify us. Nothing's off the table. Nothing is wasted in our lives. The question is, will we go to him in the midst of our infirmities, proverbial or literal? Will we go to Jesus out of our deep need for him? Third point, paralysis threatens us all. 
the story here now takes a dramatic turn um, from the paralytic himself to the scribes in the story here in verse 6. While the larger crowd may represent mostly ambivalence towards Jesus, the scribes actually represent an outright rejection of him. Here with the commentator, James Edward, he uh, says, he says, Jesus can heal a man of physical paralysis. The larger question is whether he can heal the scribes of spiritual paralysis. The scribes are no less dependent on Jesus than is the paralytic for the work of God, but their learning and status make them less aware of their need for it. You and I have a threat today, and it's to our hearts, and it's that we would become spiritually paralyzed. Physically able, yes. A look, Everyone looking at us, they, they'd see like, wait, he's, he's got things together. But phys- or spiritually, we're crippled. Having a form of godliness, as Paul said to Timothy, but denying its power. Jesus called these people whitewashed tombs, saying, we believe in God functionally, or we believe in God with our mouth, but functionally in our lives, we're more like atheists because God's power is not necessary in our lives. We're functional atheists. Jesus' response to the scribes in this story is, why do you question these things in your heart? Why do you question these things in your heart? So heart check, what, what do you question? What do you question in life? What do you question about God, what he's doing, what he's done? What, when, you, when you read that, and we see like, man, that I'm right there. I, I question God, and there is unbelief in me. We gotta know it, and we gotta be able to say it, confess it, and repent of it. Said another way, what, what prevents you from being needy? When I think about this, um, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is probably most obvious, but what prevents us from being needy before God is, is unrepentant sin. Sin that just lays in the dark of our lives. Things that we, um, we don't want to deal with. We don't allow other people to know. We don't confess it before God. And it's this type of unrepentance, this staying in the dark of our lives, um, that really... Is like I like to say, you know, things just differently in order to to give it greater emphasis. I mean, this is really just a love for our sin. At the end of the day, unrepentant sin is really just a love for our sin. It's and love for our sin is is a lack of love for God. If we keep drilling it down, right? You know, I don't want to repent of this. I don't want to leave this because I love this. And when we say when we when we say that, it's, well, I, I, I love it more than I love God. And this is true because every sin, whether it's against someone else or just ourselves, is against, fir- uh, firstly, God. It's offense, firstly, against Him. Let me, get, let me give you something maybe a little bit more subtle. So there's unrepentant sin in our lives. This, uh, for sure, um, it... Uh, it causes us to not feel our neediness before him. But then there's also something a little more subtle, and that's privileges. Privileges in our lives. Maybe it's money or status or whatever it may be that are like false um, confidences in our life. Um, you know, we here 
we are in, in America, the top 1% of wealth in the entire world. Every single person here. Top 1%. You know, we, we're a wealthy country. And this means that we can create a good life for ourselves. We can create a pretty decent life, right? Like, um, without God. We can have a life that seems just comfortable and good. And we don't need God for certain things in our lives. So, as I was talking to my wife about this, I asked her this question. I said, what? I said, Ryan, what what uh, causes you to not feel your neediness, you know, for God? And she was really helpful. She, she said, you know, it's really the lack of, of desire to go to God in the day-to-day and just the, the small things, the day-to-day stuff. To see God as necessary, you know, in, in the small things. Um, and I remember last week uh, during a sermon, and Pastor Ryan, you were preaching... Um, and I don't remember if, if I don't know if you remember that you said this or not, but you had said just very simply, you know, to us that church Jesus loves you, God loves you, and He cares about every little thing that you go through. And the one example you gave um, was you said if you're if you're having financial problems, God cares about it. I don't even think you gave another example. But I remember sitting there, and I was like, that's me. Like, I needed that. And people that are closest to me and Ryan know, like, we've built up, and I've shared from the pulpit in years past, we've built up a considerable amount of debt in our lives. We haven't handled our, our money fine, um, from, a, 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 in a, from a good way, in a good place, um, being faithful to steward the money that God has given us. And I thought about that um, when Ryan was talking. I was asking her, my wife Ryan now, and, and I was like, yes, that's, that's, that is exactly how I diminish my need for God in my life. And I realized that I am not going to God with, with this problem because I believe deep down inside of me that I can fix this problem and I can do it without God. And when I do that, God will be proud of me because then I'll be in obedience to him right? And what I'm doing is, back on that diagram, the triperspectival thing, is I'm trying to obey God's command with a wrong goal, right, in mind, and from a place of unbelief. It's still sin. It's still sin. It's, it's It's saying, I believe in God, but I deny his power. And so, guys, this is so subtle, but it's so prevalent in our lives. We can build a life. We can do what we need to do in our lives and have a good life. Accomplish the things we want to do. But if it's void of God's power in our lives, then we deny what Jesus wants to do in our lives. The most important thing, and that is to sanctify us through the process. Jesus wants to heal us of our sin. And so I started, you know, back in last month in in December... I'm just trying to connect this now as I, that I, I started this practice as I would, before I opened my Bible, I would just start with confession. And God, it's just been life-changing. Just a simple change in my life. It's the very first thing, before I open God's Word, before I try to understand something, is I just, I just sit there and I just admit, 
God, I need you. I'm broken before you. And, I, and I'll rattle off what I need to confess if I need to, but maybe it's just a confession of I'm just broken and I need you today. Help me to see you clearly. And so I just encourage you. I would encourage you to just, just practice that. Just practice the regular. Martin Luther says that all of life is a life of repentance and faith. That we're turning from something and turning to something. We're, tur- we're turning from our sin and we're turning to Jesus. We're dealing with the things in our life, regardless of how small they may seem or subtle they may be. And we are dealing with them by saying, no, I am turning from that unbelief and I'm turning in belief to Jesus. Jesus, you want to do something great in my life. Excuse me. John Eldridge, you guys may know him from the book Wild at Heart. Uh, he said, uh, is that what it's called? Wild at Heart, thank you. I said a brain fart there. Um, he says, a wound that goes unacknowledged and unwept is a wound that cannot heal. This is the truth, man. A wound that goes unacknowledged and unwept over it cannot heal. And so we have to weep. We have to repent of our sin. Keep going. We're running out of time. Last one. The son has total authority. The son has total authority, verses 9 through 12. It's the traditional belief amongst the Jews that Infirmities were a direct result of one's sin. And yet no priest would dare forgive someone's sins. Not even the high priest had that privilege, but once a year he would forgive and absolve the people of their sin. Only once a year. But it's Jesus here who proclaims the Son of Man as the authority on earth to forgive sins. Scribes knew this. said, no man can do that. Who is this man? The Son of Man is Jesus' self-given title for himself. He, he's the only one who calls himself that. The Son of Man. It's in reference to his incarnation. And, and it's in contrast to the Son of God. Jesus being fully God, fully man. Son of God, Son of Man. Jesus, or Mark's title for him is the Son of God. <laughs> It has to do with a lot of different things, but predominantly when we see it used, it's in reference to Jesus' suffering. To his suffering. This is what Jesus says um, in, uh, in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though the people did not see it at the time, Suffering, even suffering of Jesus was a testimony to him being the Messiah, for the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and rise again. Psalm 89, 2 through 4 and 27 says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. This is prophesying of Jesus' coming. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever, build your throne for all generations, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, is that word again, of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus, the Son of Man, the firstborn over all creation, became our representative to the Father. He took on this corroding flesh, this dying flesh, 
He took it on. He positioned himself to be humiliated. He willingly went to the cross to die so that he could purchase the forgiveness that you and I need. It was not, the per- it was not just for this one crippled man, but it's for every crippled heart that sees his need for him. Who would turn to him and believe in him. And guess what? He doesn't only have the power to do this. He has the right to do it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. He has the right to do it. He has the authority to do it. He is the son of man. Here's what that means. Yes, you must fight, Christian. You must fight to get to Jesus. But guess what? The good news is the battle's already been won. Your fighting is not in your strength. Your fighting is the battle that Jesus has already won for you. Jesus already came to you. He already came to you. That's the glory that we sit in today. That it hasn't it doesn't have anything to do with your strength or ability to get to Jesus. Praise be to God for that. He went before you. We say that, you know, we say that terminology like he went before us. Think about that. It's like we're all in line for God's eternal righteous judgment and wrath upon us. And Jesus skirts his way to the front of the line, steps in front of us, butts us all, and he takes everything for us and drinks every drop of wrath down so there's nothing left for anybody behind him. He goes before us, the firstborn of all creation, the son of man. Would you come to him today? He's sufficient to give you the strength you need to believe He's gentle enough to confess what you need to confess. He's strong enough to guard you from the spiritual paralysis that threatens your life. And guess what? He's persistent enough to perfect you until he comes again. It's his promise to you. We're going to, band, you can come and prepare to lead us now. And we're going to take communion together. And that's, this is where we're at. This is the call now is to come to him come to him. He's the one. He's the one you need to come to. And so maybe what you need to do is before you come and when you're ready is you, you take a moment in your seat and you just begin with confession. And you just begin with confessing to God your sin. And maybe it's just simply, I don't, maybe it, you don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's something specific, but maybe it's just, Lord, I am struggling with believing today. Or maybe it's, I have been coming to you in unbelief. I've been coming to you like the world predominantly believes in that you are not someone to demand anything from me, but you are just there to be there for me in whatever I go through. And Lord Jesus, I need to submit my life to you again. I need to follow you. He's your strength to do that today, church. May we remind ourselves as we come to the table that his blood shed for us, his body broken for us, is sufficient for everything that we need to follow him. He's given us the means. So let's follow. Let's follow wholeheartedly. Let's do it joyfully. Let's go after Jesus.